so here, here we have Shifra and Pua, and a baby here, these two midwives, and they were living in very unstable times, as are we. So the question is, what is the chief way the Bible shows us how to live in unstable times, in any time? Here's some verses that give you a hint. Here's from Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and pay attention to those who live according to the pattern we have set for you. And this one, keep doing what you have learned and received from me, what you have heard and seen me doing. Then the God who gives shalom will be with you. Here's another one from 2 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know how you must imitate us, that we were not idle when we were among you. We did not accept anyone's food without paying. On the contrary, we labored and toiled day and night, working so as not to be a burden to any of you. It was not that we hadn't the right to be supported, but that we could make ourselves an example to imitate. And one more passage from Hebrews. Remember your leaders, those who spoke God's message to you, reflect on the results of their way of life and imitate their trust. So in these passages, and in many others that we could present, and in the entire Bible, we see that one of the chief ways God shows us how to live is by imitating the example of those who went before us and by not imitating the bad example of those who went before us. So imitation is key to how God shows us how to live. So let's see some people in today's parashah that we should imitate in order that we might know how to live in troubled times. First, again, we have Shifra and Pua, these midwives. What do they have to teach us? Well, first of all, they feared God. This fascinated me this week when I realized these women lived before the giving of Torah. It's not going to be, it's going to be another 80 years before Torah is given. They feared God. Uh, somehow they knew that there was a law that was higher than the law of the land. In ancient Egypt, and in all the cultures of that day, and even in cultures of our day, the word of the king was law. And the king was even a divine figure. Pharaoh was a divine figure. And his word was law. But these women, even though Pharaoh had given a decree to them personally, they knew instinctively that there was a higher law than the law of the land. There is a moral law at the core of the universe. So they did the right thing. Amazing, just amazing. By the way, my grandmother is named after one of these midwives. My grandmother, may she rest in peace, was Shifra. 
They risked their lives. They would have been killed. It's, I thought of Nazi Germany as I read about this. The noble righteous from among the Gentiles who saved Jews and hid them during the Shoah, they rebelled against the law of the land. They recognized there was a higher law. They risked their lives. They would have been killed if they were found out, they and their children. So we see that example from Shifra and Pua right here. They saved others and they were rewarded by God. We hear that God gave them families. The, our tradition suggests that these women, these midwives, were not Jews, but they were Egyptian women. Because the Hebrew can be interpreted that they were either Hebrew midwives or midwives to the Hebrews. And the reason it's assumed by some of our teachers that they may not have been Jews is that it would have been remarkable for Pharaoh to expect Jews to kill Jewish babies. Well, that may be so. These are not the only heroes we'll look at today that were not Jewish or may not have been Jewish. So let's go on. They asked and they answered the key question. And we're gonna be looking at that issue throughout this entire drosh. What is the key question for me and for you in stressful times. We go on. Here is Yocheved, Moses' mother, putting her baby in that basket on the waters of the Nile. She hid her son. She set him on the river in faith for a better life. She realized she hid him for three months, but he wouldn't survive, that she couldn't hide him forever. And so, believing that he had a chance for a better life, maybe, 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 if she put him in a basket on the river and somehow he was found, she made this extraordinary sacrifice. And this reminds me of women who have babies they cannot keep, perhaps they cannot feed, perhaps for one reason or another, they cannot. And although they are strongly bonded to their babies, in order that the children might have a better life, they give them up for adoption. We need to honor people like this. What a sacrifice they make. Then, after Miriam speaks to Pharaoh's daughter and says, do you want me to get a nursemaid for you to take care of the baby? Pharaoh's daughter says, go do it and I'll pay her. Well, Yochavid then weans uh, Mo Moses, maybe for three or four years. Then, after she's done that, she makes a second sacrifice. She relinquishes the custody of her son to Pharaoh's daughter. What extraordinary behavior in stressful times. She too asked and answered the key question. Let's go on. Here is Pharaoh's daughter. Another heroine, there's a number of women who are heroes in this chapter that introduces Moses to us. It's just fascinating. Pharaoh's daughter 
is a heroine. Our tradition says that her name was Bitya, and some people, the, the, the name Batya, you've known people named Batya, these are named after this woman. Our tradition says her name was Bitya. What a heroine she was. She stepped beyond her station in life. She is a princess of Egypt. She's Pharaoh's daughter. And yet she's going to adopt and raise a child of slaves, a Hebrew baby. She stepped out of her station in life. This is huge. I think of people during the civil rights struggle, which is still going on. But in the 50s, there were comfortable white people who did the freedom rides, some of whom were killed. They stepped beyond their station in life in order to do something that needed to be done at stressful times. She crossed social boundaries as did they, the boundary between Egyptian royalty and these stigmatized slaves. She asked and answered the key question. And we go on. We come now to Moshe Rabbeinu. Here we see an Egyptian task, an Egyptian man, he's not called a taskmaster, but he's beating a Hebrew. And there in the background, stopping his chariot, is Moses, the prince of Egypt. He stepped beyond his station in life. His situation is ambiguous. He knows that the Hebrews are his people, but he's been raised in the palace. He's 40 years old. He was raised by his mother for three months, maybe uh, rather for three or four years. But here, as a prince in Egypt, he doesn't decide it's none of my business. No, no, no. He steps beyond his station in life. He saves a life and he paid a great price. He becomes a fugitive. He must, uh, as the Bible says, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He had it made. He was a prince in Egypt. He became a fugitive and he ends up in the middle of nowhere tending someone else's sheep. That was the work for senile old men and for little children. That was considered culturally idiot's work. And that's the price he paid because he asked and answered the key question. So what shall we learn from these examples? We need to ask and answer the key question. And here it is. The question you and I must always ask ourselves in every situation. And we need to constantly be returning to this question and let it overrule other questions. Questions of, of safety, questions of convenience, questions of personal advancement, questions of our station in life, questions of I don't want this to be my business. I'd rather not know about it. We must let this question 
prevail over all of those questions. The question is, what is the right thing to do in this situation? That's what Shifra and Pua did. That's what Moses's mother did. That's what the princess of Egypt did. That's what Moses did. They asked the key question, what is the right thing to do in this situation? I have three more suggestions. Number two, accept that you cannot please everyone. So don't try. I myself, for many years of my life, well into adulthood, I was so hungry for affirmation that I was too much of a people pleaser. When you're a people pleaser, you're totally destabilized because you never know exactly where you stand or what you're going to do because you've got to check it out and see what people think. In unstable times, such as we are living in, in times of crisis, especially these kinds of times, settle in your mind that you cannot please everyone, so don't try. Realize that doing the right thing is going to mean that some people are going to be very unhappy with you. I, I've been experiencing that quite a bit. And that's the way it is. It's okay. You can't avoid it. It's better that you should be a person whom other people reject because you don't do what they prefer than that you should be a person whose life is totally destabilized and where your own decisions and the sovereignty of God are perennially on hold. So accept that you cannot please everyone. So don't try. Third suggestion for these times in which we live. Ground yourself in scripture and in prayer. This is where your sense of the right thing to do is nurtured. Ground yourself in scripture and in prayer. And these two things, scripture and prayer, have a synergistic relationship. They inform each other. Read the scriptures prayerfully. Be praying as you read. Pray back to God what you read. Let your prayers inform your reading of scripture. But also pray biblically. Let scripture inform your praying. By grounding yourself in scripture and in prayer, your instinct for what the right thing to do is in troubling times will be nurtured. Fourth, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. That's the beginning of Psalm 1. Be selective in who you hang out with and who you learn from. I'm not telling you, and scripture is not telling you, to avoid association with sinful people. The Bible doesn't say that. Yeshua himself says, I'm not telling you, uh, when he's praying in John 17, he says, I don't pray, God, that you would, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. And Paul himself gives similar advice. He says, I'm not telling you not to associate with people in the world. The issue is who is influencing whom 
So don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't take the advice of ungodly people. Don't let them be your teacher. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't hang out with people who are committed to doing the wrong thing. And don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Don't adopt a cynical attitude. Instead, you and I, all of us, should be selective in who we hang out with and who we learn from. And above all, above all, remember this. The Messiah suffered on your behalf, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The ultimate example to us of what is the right thing to do is to imitate Yeshua. May God stabilize our lives and cause us to live in a way that glorifies him in unstable times. Amen. We come now to the Alenu 